0: And for this Sunday, we're going to be in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 to 44. And uh, if you're using the Bible that looks like this in the Purach, it's on page 897. John chapter 11, 1 to 44, on page 897. Will you stand for the reading of God's word? Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now, We're just now seeking to stone you. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, had been here, and my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, Where have you laid him? They said, that, they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. You can be seated as we pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Even with Mika's passing, death is on our mind. Thank you for this word from John 11. And we together unite our prayers right now asking that what happens here would be a work of your spirit. As we encounter what you have said in your word, that your spirit would take that word like a sword and penetrate to the deepest parts of us. As we pray in Jesus' name. It wasn't that long ago that it was impossible to avoid death's crooked face. Everywhere you looked, there it was. Its haunting eyes locked on you, unwilling to release you from its steely gaze. The horrors of war, costs many their sons, their brothers, their husband, their dad. Infectious disease spread like wildfire, sometimes wiping out massive portions of the population. So so that whereas today roughly one in two hundred kids die in childhood, In the pre-modern world, it was closer to one in three. And they didn't have nursing homes where the aged could go and spend their final years. The ailing often died right in their homes while the whole family was involved in their care. That's why when you read the old versions, the original versions of the fairy tales that have been disney they're bleak, and they're quite honest about death. I mean, kids were going to see it, so the nursery tales better include it. So Little Red Riding Hood involves both Miss Riding Hood and her grandmother being eaten by a wolf. Rockabye Baby talks about a cradle falling from the top of a tree, baby and all. In Hansel and Gretel, there's a witch who cooks and eats little children. Death was everywhere you looked. The grim reaper lurked in every shadow of your life. You couldn't escape his reach. But today's different. We have, as a society, we've done almost everything we can to limit our encounters with death. And even when we do encounter death, we do everything we can to sanitize it and clean it up. So antibiotics and vaccinations have made childhood mortality rare. Rare. Hospitals and nursing homes have relegated death and dying to an isolated and professionalized corner of our life. And at least in this corner of our world, we live during an unprecedented time of peace. So we're not in the same way forced to think about death. If you think about our songs that we sing, we sing about love. And sex and pleasure, not about death. We tell our kids stories about asserting yourself, following your dreams, believing yourself, not about death. But for all our efforts, the grim reaper still lurks. We can dodge it, suppress it, but somehow death has the last laugh even today. It catches us at unexpected times, and its gruesome, haunting face, once seen, can't be shaken. Perhaps precisely because we've tried to crowd death out of our lives, We are less equipped now to handle it when it comes. Now, I know some of you here know exactly what I mean. You're haunted by death's specter, perhaps because of a diagnosis that means death is knocking. Perhaps because you lost a loved one that though others may have forgotten, you know your heart will never heal. Once you see death's gruesome face, you can't shake it. Now, Others of us today are doing fine avoiding serious encounters with death. Sure, we watch the news, Yes, we've attended a funeral for so-and-so distant relative, but as of yet, we've managed to dodge death's ghoulish face. So we don't realize how haunting it can be. Now, that's you, I don't want to rain on your parade, but I'm going to. It's likely just a matter of time. Now here's the point of this grim introduction. We must learn to think rightly about death. We need to learn to think rightly about death. And I think that's exactly what John 11 was written to do. John 11 starts like all good stories do. A crisis. A certain man was... Ill. And it was not just any man, it was Lazarus. We learn from verse 2 that he's the brother of Mary, the Mary who anointed Jesus with expensive ointment, wiped his feet with her hair. We learn from verses 3 and 5 that Jesus deeply loved this family, including Lazarus himself. So you have this crisis right at the beginning. One of the people Jesus loved the most is ill. So of course, what do Mary and Martha do? They send for Jesus. He's something like a four-day journey away. But because He's the only one they know can help, they send for Him despite the distance. And the tension mounts. What's going to happen? But unlike all good stories, The crisis is over almost before it begins. Apparently, nobody told John about spoiler alerts. Because in verse 4, we learn that this story doesn't end with someone dead. And then in verses 11 and 12, we learn all the details. Actually, Lazarus will die, but Jesus is going to bring him back to life. And with that... All the narrative tension leaves the story. We know it all. The illness is going to lead to death. And we know Jesus is going to make him alive again. Now sure, we might want to keep reading to learn how it will be that Jesus raises him. And even knowing the ending, it might be an interesting enough story that we want to keep reading. But that doesn't escape the fact that What had the makings of a great story is more or less resolved before verse 13. what gives? I joked that John hadn't heard of spoiler alerts, but the Holy Spirit who inspired John wasn't a dummy. He knows what he's doing. You see, this story was never meant ultimately to be about How a dead man came back to life. What I mean is that's not what John wanted to be the main drama of the story. He wanted the main drama of the story to be centered around how we think about death. Or let me be a little more specific. He wants the story to be about how Jesus changes how we think about death. So I want to show you that shift. I want to show you how he shifts from the drama from what will happen to ill Lazarus to the importance of how Jesus has changed the way we think about death. That's the switch. Ill Lazarus to how Jesus changes the way we think about death. Let me show you how John changes the drama. First, John tells us in verses 5 and 6 that Jesus deliberately and provocatively delayed going to Lazarus. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That kind of makes you scratch your head. You realize something else is going on here. Jesus is deliberately delaying because he wants to do something specific. And John gives us clues as to what the drama he's trying to highlight is really about. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it what the drama is here. That's what he's trying to highlight. Or verse 15. Look at the end of verse 15. I'm glad that I was not here so that you may believe. Or look at the very end of the story in verses 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. You see, Jesus isn't so much focused on the resurrection of Lazarus as he is all the people around and what they think of him as it relates to death. This is a story that's rooted in who Jesus is. It's a story designed to help us think rightly about Jesus it's a story designed to help us think about rightly about Jesus vis-a-vis death. The backdrop of the story is death. How do we think about it? But the whole backdrop is meant to point us to Jesus, who is he. And then you see that, this... What are people thinking about death, and how, are they, how does Jesus change that? You see that drama unfold because there are two main scenes, two parallel scenes. One with Martha in verses 17 to 27, and one with Mary in verses 28 to 38. These two parallel scenes are critical because in them, John is showing us how Jesus changes the way we think about death. So we could talk about this sermon, we could title this sermon as How to Think About Death. Or if you don't like short titles, you could say How Jesus Changes the Way We Think About Death. That's kind of the banner over this sermon. And we'll learn one critical way to think about death from each sermon. Of these two main parallel scenes. So let's then enter the first scene. Verses 17 to 27. Now remember Jesus had heard the news. About Lazarus illness. And had deliberately waited two extra days. Before starting his journey to Bethany. He did this. So that Lazarus would have been dead. Before. He left. And then after four days of travel, Lazarus is not just dead, he's very dead. He's been in the tomb four days. Now, I think it's important what Jesus did. Because if Jesus had left right away, it would have seemed like he arrived too late. Jesus simply hadn't gotten there in time. The situation was beyond his control. But instead, Jesus shows his complete control of the situation. He wasn't accidentally too late. He knew what was going to happen all along. He was arriving after his death, not because of his mistake, but because it's exactly what he wanted to do. Which makes sense why the disciples and John even includes a little discussion about the, the, the bigger story going on in Jesus about the Jews wanting to kill Jesus. This little detail is like, I've got all this under control. Nothing's happening apart from me. But not only that, the extra two days in the grave would have made it extra clear to all the onlookers that Lazarus was really dead. So Jesus arrives, and Martha immediately goes out to meet him. Mary stays back. She's overwhelmed with emotion. So Martha gets there, and she states what she believes with all her heart to be the case. You see it in verse 21. See it there? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Incidentally, it's exactly what Mary would say later. They're both sure that Jesus' presence could have saved their brother. He'd done it too many times for them to doubt the possibility. But in verse 22, Martha adds a line that Mary omits. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You see what she wants? She wants Jesus to raise her brother from the dead. And she believes, if Jesus asks the Father, that will happen. Now again, this interesting interplay. We, we know already that Jesus is in fact going to raise Lazarus. It's not a question for us or for Jesus, but it is a question for Martha. So we get to watch this little dialogue that's interesting because of that aspect of the drama. By John giving us information that Martha doesn't have, John's drawing our attention, our focus, to the drama of the conversation between Jesus and Martha. And Jesus' response, it's interesting, it's a bit vague. He kind of shifts the discussion. He says, Your brother will rise again. Now, Martha was of the school of thought that believed on the last day, last day all who belonged to Yahweh would rise. So when he says this, she tries to not let her her hopes get up. She responds to Jesus in a somewhat coy way, perhaps hoping against hope that maybe he means something more than just last day resurrection. So there in verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But if if, if Martha was hoping that Jesus would start talking about a now resurrection... Jesus doesn't take the bait. He keeps the focus on the final resurrection. The last day resurrection. Now here's, here's an important question for us to just kind of stop right now and think about. On the last day, I'm not talking about Lazarus right now, I'm talking about the last day. On what basis will dead people rise from the dead. The Bible teaches that death is a product of the fall. That is, it's here because we rebelled against God. Kind of a cause and effect type of thing. You drink poison, you feel pretty sick. You do hard drugs, you fry your brain. You rebel against God death sets in. And in Adam we did rebel against God, and so we all die. Death is universal because we live in a world that is universally in rebellion against its creator. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's how the Bible makes sense of this world we're in. So on what basis can anyone actually rise again, even on the last day? Do you see what Jesus has done? He shifted the conversation to focus on that. This isn't nearly as much about Lazarus now being brought back to life as it is about how anyone, how can anyone actually overcome death? And that shift that he's done allows Jesus to say something profound that's really Reality altering. Verses 25 and 26. This is the big news of our passage. Look at it with me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you see what he says? The only way anyone can overcome death is through Jesus. The only way to undo the effect of our rebellion against God is through Jesus. He alone is the resurrection and the life. Nobody else Nothing else. Jesus is the only solution to death. But he's not simply saying that he's the exclusive solution to death. He's also saying something about his very nature. His very ontology, if you will. Just like the the good sheepdog is bred to herd sheep. Just like the best fireman finds something in his bones that compels him to go into the fire to save a life, so Jesus is, by His very nature, the solution to death. At that very moment when Adam rebelled and death was born, the eternal Son of God began His mission to defeat death and bring resurrection and life. Whatever sort of enemy death is, Jesus is our hero. He is the one to deliver us. He was born for this. And if you look carefully at verses 25 and 26, you'll see that Jesus is saying more than that he brings dead people back to life. He's saying He brings a certain kind of life. Once He brings you back to life, you never die. So you hear stories, dubious as they may be, of people coming back from the dead. But all those people die again. Jesus is claiming something altogether different here. He's saying that anyone who believes in Him will rise from the dead and never die again. If Adam brought death, Jesus brings resurrection life. Which leaves us with a choice. You see, we are born... Aligned with Adam. We are born aligned with rebellion against God. We are born awaiting death. So here's our choice Will we remain aligned with Adam? Or will we instead? Renounce that alliance and instead align ourselves with Christ. It's a choice we must make. We have to embrace Jesus. We have to entrust ourselves to Him or, as he says, believe in Him. This is a critical question. Who are you aligned with? Adam, the death bringer, or Jesus, the resurrection and the life? You see, that's the question Jesus leaves Martha with. and Martha answers as best she can. She believes. Jesus is the Christ that is he is the anointed, the King, the Messiah. He is her Messiah. She believes he's the God's Son of Old Testament prophecy who's ushering in God's kingdom. Her allegiance is to Jesus. So let me try and bring all of that together. What is God teaching us? in this scene with Martha, as it relates to how we think about death. He's teaching us that we must look to Jesus as the one true solution to death. We must look to Jesus as the one true solution to death. Now, the careful thinker could pause right here and say, great, Jesus says he's the resurrection of life, but anyone could say that. Talk is cheap. And the careful thinker would be exactly right. But but this story is not a stand-alone story. Remember, it's part of John's wider gospel track. If death is actually going to be undone, as we saw, sin must be undone. If death is going to be vanquished, our rebellion must be atoned for. The only way to undo death is to reconcile us to our Creator. But we can't be reconciled with Him until our sin is dealt with, because He's a holy God. And so John's Gospel is building to that moment When Jesus becomes our sacrifice. When Jesus atones for our sin. When Jesus reconciles us to our creator by dealing with our sin. That's why Jesus is unique, the only solution to death. That's why Jesus is the resurrection of life. Because he's actually the one who can do it by paying the penalty for our sin. By reconciling us to the Father. It's also why He's not just the resurrection. To be reconciled with our Heavenly Father isn't just, doesn't just mean that we don't have to die anymore. It's to be connected to the very life we were intended for. It's to be granted a kind of quality of life that is eternal and lasting in its quality. Jesus and Jesus alone is our resurrection and our life. So, when we face death with all its haunting and ghoulish ways, we need to know this, that Jesus has done something about it. This terrible lowest part of our fallen world, Jesus has done something about. He is the resurrection and the life. The first way to think about death is to look to Jesus as the one true solution to death. And that's the end of scene one. Scene one ends and Lazarus is still dead. Verse 28, Martha runs off to get her sister. And like Martha, Mary also gets up to go and meet Jesus. But in verse 29, John begins to focus in on another detail. Mourning. Weeping. Let's pick it up at verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. compared to the Martha scene, this scene reads with more pathos, more emotion. There's a a depth of feeling to it. Yes, in verse 32, Mary says the exact same thing Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But look how verse 32 begins. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet. And then look what it says right after in verse 33. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. Do you hear the pathos? the emotion, the passion. Verse 33 is very important. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce translated this, he became deeply agitated in spirit and shook with emotion. Another scholar, D.A. Carson, suggests He was outraged in his spirit and troubled see both these great greek scholars are trying to get after the strength of the language here because these are some of the of greek's strongest most emotive words there is power and rage in them she Jesus is shaking down to his bones with grief and indignation. Something is making him snort with anger. And being so moved, he asked to be brought to dead Lazarus' grave. And once he's there, we're treated to the shortest verse in the entire Bible. John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus Wept. Pathos. Emotion. Something makes Jesus indignant, troubled to his bones, and then it all comes out in some sort of uncontrolled weeping. Stop and grasp that for a moment. The God of the universe, the maker of all things, the one who knows the beginning from the end, the eternal one, is here, head buried in his hands, sobbing. There's no mistaking the depth of his emotion, it's not play acting. This is coming from the deepest parts of him. It's a crying that originates in his soul. Verse 38 underscores this because it, it again tells us Jesus was deeply moved a second time. Pathos. Jesus' feelings are emitting from his soul. Now those who have come face to face with death's ghoulish face don't need me to explain Jesus' emotions. When you hear that outrage that flows out into a shaking with emotion, when you hear that He's so deeply troubled that He weeps, you know those kinds of tears you know there's no language that could do justice to how your insides feel in those moments of grief. Maybe for the rest of us, we've seen it in the movies. A widow groaning in agony, weeping and wailing over her now deceased husband. Children wailing and calling for their departed parents. But for many, those emotions are real. Now, I'm not trying to say that everyone grieves the same way. I'm not everyone trying to say that everyone who experiences real grief weeps. We're all wired differently. We all deal with our emotions differently. For some, when these outraged and shaking feelings stir us, they feel very different than for others. But the emotions are every bit as real, even for those who don't weep. You see, this second scene is a pathos scene. Why this second scene? Do you see how the movie, the the, the sorry, the story could have just take Mary out of it altogether? Just go from I am the resurrection of the life, and then show up in the tomb. Boom! Lazarus walks out. Why this second scene? Why not just leave it? I am the resurrection of the life. Because there's something else John wants us to see. There's another way he wants us to think rightly about death. And so he shows us how Jesus viewed death. And I want to give you a three-word summary of how Jesus viewed death. And I think these three words are so important for us to grasp today as Christians. Here's the three words. Jesus hates death. He hates it. At the very core of who He is, He hates us. Hates it. Remember, His very nature is the antithesis of the death. He is the resurrection and the life. The one who is the resurrection and the life hates death with every fiber of who He is. We teach our kids hate is a strong word. But hate might not be strong enough here. He abhors death. He despises death. Death turns his innards inside out. It puts his stomach in a knot. Jesus hates death. 1 Corinthians 15 calls death the last enemy of God. As we saw in Genesis, death is the byproduct of rebellion against God. It's what happens when a world's cut off from God. Think about this scene. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. All of the readers know it. But even though he knows that this particular death will soon be no more, just his proximity to it and all the grief it brings causes him to be deeply troubled, outraged, shaken. It causes him to weep. Death is terrible. It's to be hated. It is God's enemy and the antithesis of Jesus. This is so critical for us to grasp when we encounter death. Because I think today, we Christians sometimes try to wrap death up in pretty wrapping paper. Death is just a passage to something better, we say. He's in a better place, we comfort. You see that unnaturally still, that eerie corpse, and you say, that's not him. He's with Jesus. Now, I want to speak with some nuance here, so I ask you to pay attention. There's a certain level of truth In all those statements, it is true that when a believer dies, his soul enters immediately into God's presence. But the body is part of their existence, the body is part of who they are, and now their soul is without a body because of death. That's weird. It's not right. And when the final enemy is destroyed, when Jesus comes back, those dead bodies will rise up from the grave. All of them, the quick and the dead, will rejoice because death will be undone and the soul will have its body again. And the small comfort, it is a comfort, but the small comfort that the soul is with Jesus does not nullify the great unnatural terror of a death. One we love is gone. A part of our hearts has been ripped out of us. There's no need to try to polish this ugly reality. Don't make God's enemy look like a friend. If the eternal Son of God was shaken and wept, we should not think ourselves better. If Jesus hated death, so ought we. So I'm not saying those phrases should never be used. There is truth in them, and understood rightly, they can be used as truth and as comfort. But scene two, this second exchange is giving us the second right way to think about death. We should hate it. Hate death. Christians should grieve with greater earnestness than anyone else because we know that this foul, evil thing called death is a product of the fallen world and is an enemy of God. So if we have renounced our alignment with Adam and the death he brought in, if we've aligned ourselves instead with the one who is the resurrection the life, then we of all people should despise death. The Bible never tells us not to grieve. It doesn't tell us to temper our grief. But what it does tell us is to grieve with hope. We have hope because we know this vile, evil enemy will ultimately be defeated. Jesus is going to return, and then death will be no more. So we have hope that the grief we feel doesn't have the last say. But, oh Christians, let us weep. Jesus wept, let us weep. Death and all that it brought stirred Jesus deeply. It troubled Him and it should trouble us too. If the scene with Martha taught us to look to Jesus as the one true solution to death, the scene with Mary teaches us to hate death. And let me say, it's so important that we keep these two lessons together. Because if you hold only one and lose the other, you fall off the cliff. Death is horrible. But Jesus, by his very nature, does something about it. Verses 38 to 44 bring our story to a close. Jesus does indeed raise Lazarus. In John's gospel, this miracle story placed here is very deliberate. Along the way in John's gospel, he tells us certain stories, often called signs, that describe a public miracle Jesus performed that's meant to reveal a bit of what he's like. So he turns water into wine. He heals someone who is sick, he feeds 5,000. He causes a blind man to see. Have you ever played one of those games where somebody hides something and then someone's supposed to find it, and you say, "Hot, hot, hot, cold, cold, cold? It's like it's like that game. And with each sign, Jesus or John saying, "Hotter, hotter." Hotter, you're you're starting to see what Jesus really is. And by the time he actually raises someone from the dead, John's screaming, red hot, you're burning! Oh, it's so hot! Because we're getting to the very core of who Jesus is. After this, in John's gospel, there's only one more sign to go. And it's the one we're going to celebrate in two weeks, the resurrection. And it's that great sign that this lesser sign hints at. This raising of Lazarus is merely meant to hint at the character of Jesus. He is the death defeater. I still remember about 15 years ago when my friend Steve Hinchy taught on this passage. I'd invited him to teach and he made me really uncomfortable questioning, uh uh-oh, what did I get myself into letting him teach this class? Because he said that what happened with Lazarus wasn't a resurrection, it was a resuscitation. Like, oh no, well, who did he read? But then he explained himself. He says, yes, Lazarus was really dead. This is a raised to life story. But he pointed out that death hadn't actually been defeated. Because Lazarus, though raised, was going to die again. Jesus had just prolonged the point at which death set in. How different than the Easter story. When Jesus rose, he rose never to die again. And when Jesus returns, our bodies will rise never to die again. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. The raising of Lazarus is just a hint, cluing us into the real nature of Jesus. And the real nature of Jesus is, he is the resurrection and the life. Now, if you don't hate death, that's not good news. But if we hate death like Jesus did, we will rejoice all the more at the news that Jesus has defeated death. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we're going to sing about Jesus bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave He rose. And because of that sin's curse, death has lost its grip. Help us, Lord, to think about death rightly in light of Jesus. That death is to be hated. And yet, Jesus is the solution. And may that carry our souls when we come face to face with that ghoulish face, the Grim Reaper. And even as we sing this song, glorying in the resurrection of Jesus, may our hope all the more be in Him. And may we be anticipating all the more our great celebration of that, in two weeks.